Hello everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Watch If You Dare. I am Derek Daywan Smith, and joining me as always is Aaron Mansfield. How you doing today, buddy? I am doing spooktacular. How are you? I'm doing alright. I have been kind of digging, speaking of spooky things, I've been digging into the backlog of another podcast, the last podcast on the left, uh, fantastic uh, horror-related podcast, and I was listening to one of their episodes late at night last night while I was playing a video game, and it was Ghosts of the Civil War, <laughs> and it was, it was a good episode, but I freaked myself out because Marcus got into a story about one of the hauntings of this, like, woman who's dressed in red who just, like, wanders one of the battlefields and just screams. Like, that's all she does is is just this woman entity walking around a, a battlefield screaming. And I just pictured that in my head and freaked myself out. So that's how it's been going on my end. So wait, is it just her, like, floating over the battlefield, like, screaming like a Scooby-Doo ghost where she's just like, or is it more just like actual just kind of screaming on the battlefield? Rip headphone users. Um, I think she's screaming like a guy's name. Like she's looking for, I guess, maybe a soldier who was killed in that battle. I don't know. (laughs) I I think she's heard screaming a name though. But yeah, that whole like, that whole aesthetic or, or picture in my head of like a a woman ghost just screaming freaks me out for some reason. <laughs> Going back to irrational phobias and fears. I mostly listened to some episodes of Coast to Coast this morning where fuck yes, s- s- somebody was just talking about their uh, guardian spirit that was nine foot tall and blue and a warrior, and I love George Norrie's immediate response, which is just. Was it like an avatar? <laughs> there was just like a pause. Just, you know, like like the big blue cat people. <laughs> there was still just another pause. Just like, no, that's like, like, like the cat people. Like, like an avatar. Just, sure. Okay, <laughs> moving on. Just literally the crazy person just being called out on their craziness by George Norrie was great. So it always is. Are you listening to, do you have a, are you a coast coast member to where you can get like full episodes or do you just listen to like the best of, I'm just listening to like the best of recaps, the little like seven to maybe 10 minute long ones. It gives me just enough of an insight into what the episodes are and what kind of lunatics are on there that I enjoy kind of hearing the craziness, but I couldn't stand to listen to like a whole episode of somebody trying to tell me about like, the alignment of the planets and how like the tectonic plates are going to flip and we're all going to be doomed to some kind of biblical, you know, doomsday prophecy, whatever. So just that show is a little bit too wild for even me. I think I I love it. Uh, It depends on who's on like the crazier, the better in my opinion. One of my favorite ones though, that I listened to and it was, I, I used to work for our listeners. I used to work night shift, um, in the, at the hospital. And so one night we, it was a slow night. So they asked if any of the nurses wanted to go home early because just, you know, to save money and all that. And I said, sure. Yeah. I don't mind going home early. So I left and it was like two in the morning and I was driving across new Orleans back to my apartment and two in the morning, no one's on the road. It's like a Tuesday. And 
I would listen to Coast to Coast anytime I was I was driving around that late at night. And it was this episode on Black Eyed Children. And Black Eyed Children is like this newer urban legend phenomena of these kids that literally just have black eyes who will knock on people's doors. And if people answer the doors, like something horrible happens. And if they don't answer the doors, like the kids will freak out and act really weird. And they'll ask to be like invited inside. And if you tell them no, they'll start acting violent or something. So, and I I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And I got back to my house and I just thought there was going to be a black eyed child waiting for me and uh, freaked myself out. That, That was probably one of my more favorite, like kind of bat shit, but also still creepy at the same time because the person talking about it was dead serious like they weren't being like comically crazy they were just like convinced that these demonic entities would take the form of kids and have black eyes oh yeah um beyond that uh one of the podcasts that i also listen to fairly regularly is uh shockwaves which i love those guys one of the hosts on there rebecca mckendry is always talking about the movie deep rising and um i remember vaguely that movie kind of being on all the time with different cable camp uh different cable channels so I've, after them kind of talking it up again for the millionth time i finally just went ahead and put that on on hbo and i will say that movie's pretty fun um the special effects in it do not hold up well at all like that's i think one of the bigger complaints of that movie even when it came out was that it's right in that space of the late 90s when practical effects were at their peak in terms of just being the best that they can possibly be but digital effects were bad, like terror bad. I I always think of the Spawn movie. Just oh yeah, it looked like the graphics in that were terrible. Spawn, Lost in Space was another one that had really good practical effects, and then miserable bad digital effects. This is the same guy who directed the Mummy, the Brendan Fraser Brendan Fraser one from '99. He also directed the. Jungle Book movie with Jason Scott Lee and Lena Headey from the mid-90s as well, the Disney one. But Deep Rising is like Treat Williams and they hit the nail on the head on the Shockwaves episode. He is basically playing the Nathan Fillion character from Firefly to a T. He's just that kind of cantankerous, jokey captain guy. Um, So it's him and his, you know, sidekicks bringing this team of mercenaries out into the middle of the ocean for these dot 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 purposes um there's also a giant cruise ship out in the middle of the stormy ocean where famka jansen is hanging out as this kind of very like selena kyle Catwoman character she's just dressed up all fancy and hanging out with all these rich people and you know picking their pockets and stealing from them and sneaking around the ship basically what ends up happening is they are there to try to rob this ship and there also happens to be a giant tentacle Cthulhu monster that attacks everything kind of at the same time. So they're inside, and it's this team of mercenaries, and it's kind of hilarious because it's like Jaiman Hansu um, from Gladiator and Guardians of the Galaxy, and Jason Fleming, and the guy who played Kano in the original Mortal Kombat movie, <laughs> Wes Studi as well. So it's just like this weird mix of character actors as these mercenaries. Um, but they all go aboard this giant 
uh, cruise ship that was just attacked by the tentacle monster. So the whole cruise ship is, you know, in a mess and there's all these dead people everywhere. And the tentacles seemingly can get into every weird little tiny small hole possible. Uh, there's literally a part where, like, a woman gets sucked through a toilet. So that means that this giant tentacle monster has tentacles that are small and, like, agile enough to, like, work their way through all the very intricate small, like, plumbing pipes just to, like, yank people. Um, it was absurd, but it was pretty fun. Like, it's literally, like, Treat Williams and Famke Jansen on a sea <laughs> at the end, like, riding the sea through the inside of the ship. It was bananas, so I I had a fun time with it. It's a lot of the same kind of feel that you have, you know, from the Mummy movie the next year, where it's just kind of this high adventure with, like, craziness happening around them. Um, Kevin J. O'Connor is also playing the Weasley sidekick in this, just like he played the Weasley sidekick in The Mummy. So, it was fun. That's that's kind of the most recent genre-related thing I've seen. I did a quick Google search of Deep Rising while you were talking about it, and this movie looks ridiculous, <laughs> just from the images I'm looking at. This guy's body is, like, half... Like, like it's half of his body's been melted by acid, and, like, you can see the bones in his hand. This monster looks ridiculous. <laughs> So, like I mentioned, the practical effects in this movie are really good. Like, you see, like, the melted guy, and there's some CG augmentation there, but, like, the practical side of that effect is really solid. Um, there's another part earlier where you see, like, a floating kind of cut-in-half corpse. Um, the practical effects are really good, but the the digital monster in and of itself is bad. And at the end, when the entire cruise ship blows up with the monster, you know, in the cruise ship, it's like a PS1 cutscene in terms of the graphics. It's just giant, angular, confetti CGI shapes just shattering in all directions with, like, really bad, fuzzy CGI fire behind it. The effects 100% do not hold up. The practical effects do. And the practical effects were all done by Rob, Rob Bottin, who did The Thing and RoboCop and all these, like, really solid practical effects movies. I was just about to say this. This, like, the screenshots at least all look like they could be a sequel to The Thing. This looks like... <laughs> I'm just, again, sorry, I'm looking through these pictures. This just looks like a late 90s movie to the max. Oh, it is, and it's great, so... It's cracking me I up. definitely enjoy that. It is on... HBO Go, HBO Now, if anybody wants to check that out. Very nice. All right, well, let's get talking about the movie this week. This week we are returning again to 70s horror. This one is less well-known than Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We we watched a movie called The Sentinel. There is danger everywhere. There is evil, evil everywhere. Turn around, Allison. Look behind you. There is horror. There is darkness. I think Allison may die. But watching, waiting, warding off evil, there is hope. The Sentinel. It's a 1977 film directed by Michael Winner, who did, I believe, the Death Wish movies, didn't he? Didn't he direct those? Yes, he did. Um, Michael Winner is quite an interesting dude. Um, but yes, he directed the Death Wish movies most notably. Yeah, so The Sentinel is like, 
this would be the type of horror movie. I always, I always joked about this. Like if I wrote a horror movie, my horror movie would either be something like just on the nose, like the Sentinel or even like dead, deadly silence. That one with like the lady who was a puppeteer and the puppets come alive and all that. Yeah. Like just either ghost demon puppets or satanic (laughs) supernatural uh, apartment building. But so the Sentinel is very much like if you ever watch any of the music videos for the band Uncle Acid and the Deadbeats, the Sentinel is like basically I-, I could see that they probably chopped some of the scenes from this movie and put it in some of their music videos. I would not be surprised at all. It's very much of that se- late 70s kind of like satanic, right? Did this come out before or after The Exorcist? What year did The Exorcist drop? It was actually only, uh, it was four years before. It was 1973, looks like. Yeah. And so, so yeah, there, I don't know. You could probably shine some more light on this, Mansfield, but I feel like there were a lot of like that late 70s kind of satanic spirit horror movement. I just feel like this is a, this is a common genre that 70s horror went into. This movie's for sure pulling a little bit of The Exorcist. It is also pulling a lot of Rosemary's Baby style. Everything is kind of centered around an apartment. You know, there's this apartment in New York that's too good to be true. It's very much something that, you know, the beyond, um, which does come out after this movie, kind of rips off as well the idea that, like, this particular space is a doorway to hell or a doorway to some kind of darkness and there has to be some kind of guardian there to keep it from spilling over um rosemary's baby doesn't necessarily have that angle but it does have just the angle of it being centered around an apartment you know most of the movie takes place in this apartment and the apartment building and the people in the apartment are also like tied up in the story you know this movie definitely pulls a lot of things from rosemary's baby from the exorcist there's also some angles of you know, a little bit of detective stuff that's going on in here as well, trying to figure out, and that's kind of the the B-plot as well. Um, one thing that right off the bat that I really enjoy is just the amount of character actors who yes. are in this movie. Yes, and I, like, it, I cracked up so hard when I saw, Je- like, a really young Jeff Goldblum and Christopher Walken in this movie, and Christopher Walken's character is such an asshole, and then uh, Jeff Goldblum, like, just I had no clue. I can't. I think I remember like looking at the credits of this movie sometime before watching it and seeing, oh, Wa- Christopher Walken. This is one of his early, like, in it, earlier in his career, I guess. And but I had no clue about Jeff Goldblum showing up. And it, like, he doesn't have a major part, but he has some lines in the movie, and you can like, you can tell it's Jeff Goldblum, and it, it really cracked me up because he looks really young in this movie. This was after Jeff Goldblum had done. He had done Nashville, um, and that's also a movie that the main star, uh, Christina Raines, who plays Allison, um, was also in. He was in California Split, which that's a great gambling movie. He was then in The Sentinel, um, but this was, you know, right before he was in, um, like, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which was the following year, and that movie's fantastic. We'll eventually get around to covering that. Um, I keep saying that every episode when we're talking about other movies, we'll eventually get around to covering that. We will. <laughs> Just assume if we mention a horror movie, we'll probably cover it at some point. Yeah. Um, so this was very early in Jeff Goldblum's career. Beverly D'Angelo also pops up, and she's kind of most well-known for um, playing the mom, 
wife character in the National Lampoon's movies. Um, she was also in American History X. Um, Christopher Walken, like we mentioned, is in it. Um, and this is fairly early in his career. I mean, he had been in like some TV movies up to this point. Um, but this was kind of the first one of the first major movies that he was in. Like, he'd only been in two or three things. And then afterward, he's got a small part in Annie Hall, and then immediately he's in The Deer Hunter the next year, and that's, you know, that was a huge movie in his career to start. So he's in it. We've also got Jose Ferrer right at the beginning, and he's the guy who plays, like, the Emperor in Dune. His son, uh, Miguel Ferrer, is a really well-known character actor who was in tons of stuff like Twin Peaks basically played every like corporate douchebag cop <laughs> asshole kind of character going forward he was in robocop um so i mean he's you know very well-known character actor as well and he's only in basically the beginning of this movie um ava gardner is the realtor in the movie as well um burgess meredith who's you know the penguin in the old batman Car- or the not cartoon but the old batman tv show he also plays mickey in the rocky series um, he is the most delightful, just old queen in this movie with his little bird and his cat. Cat, yep. <laughs> the party that they, the birthday party they threw for the cat later in this movie. Just, he's delightful in this movie. Yep. Of course, Eli Wallach is in it as well, and he's, you know, the ugly from The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and lots of other movies. Jerry Orbach is in it, which, you know, he's obviously most known for things like Law & Order, but he was a huge stage actor at the time and Broadway guy. Did Eli Wallach, did he always also get typecasted as, like, a sleazeball? Because he was pretty sleazy in this movie, too, as, as the head detective. Um, not always. I mean, he's he's had a very, like, varied career. Yeah, I mean, he's had a, a long career. Yeah, he's the ugly in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, but, I mean, he was also in, like, The Magnificent Seven. I mean, he's he had been making movies pretty much up to the point where he died. He died just back in 2014. Um, but he literally was making movies all the way up to that point. Heather and I actually just watched The Holiday fairly recently, and that movie was, I mean, that movie's from 2006, but, you know, he was in it as well. So, you know, he, he worked up to the day he died. All that said, you know, I really enjoy movies from this era where you see a lot of really well-known faces. Um, and it's just... It's hilarious to see people like Christopher Walken, who's huge now, pop up and basically have all of two lines in this movie as just kind of the sidekick detective to Eli Wallach. Jeff Goldblum, like you mentioned, has a few lines, but he's just like the fashion photographer. Like, he's not really in it that much. Um, and Christina Raines, you know, who plays the main character we're following, Allison, um, I mean, she was in Nashville, and she was in really Scott's first big movie, The Duelists. Um, but from there, I mean, she was in, you know, a lot of TV stuff and eventually, I guess, just kind of got out of the biz. You know, that was pretty much it. Yeah, she retired and became a nurse. Oh, really? Yep. Yeah. I didn't realize that she became a nurse, but um, she definitely has a point in which her career cuts off. Um, and she mostly just did TV stuff after this. So After I watched this movie, I, I did go back and look up all the credits because there were a lot of faces that I would recognize, but not necessarily know who they were. Then I'd look them up like something, somebody like Eli Wallach. I keep forgetting that he was the ugly and the good, the bad and the ugly, which is possibly in my top five of my favorite movies ever. There was a lot of like past meets presence because a lot of these actors were ri- like rising up in the 50s and this was maybe towards the end of their career 
Whereas then you have like Jeff Goldblum and Christopher Walken who are like the bit parts in the, this movie and now are now superstars. And it, it was it was a lot of fun just to just to watch like the the actors and actresses that were in this movie and, and what characters they played. Because uh, you were dead on about Burgess Meredith. He is fantastic in this movie. He might be my favorite character, but uh, we'll get into it. Yeah. So the, again, this is the Sentinel is made in 1977. It follows a beautiful fashion model by the name of Allison Parker, uh, who is played by Christina Raines. I mean, I will go get out right off the bat. Like in this movie, it is like timeless beauty. She is just super pretty. She is a hell of an actress in this movie. The movie actually starts with a brief scene in Italy of just like this priest walking in to uh, just a chapel. And there are these other uh, priests or bishops or just, you know, clothed religious figures. And they basically recite this this prayer cantation about how like they they're they're watching for evil and. Is it just me, or do you also possibly get the impression that these other guys, there's eight of them total, and I had to go back and count, these eight guys are possibly, and they're all different nationalities, there's definitely like a black guy there, there's an Asian guy, there's a couple of white guys, I get the impression that these are priests from all different countries around the world that are all possibly guarding their own, like, entrances to hell. Like, they are other sentinels around the world. Yes, and they're, these are like the guys that are all over the different world guarding all these different gateways. I had I had to go back and count because I think one of the original titles of like The Beyond is like The Seven Doors to Hell or The Seven Gates to Hell or something like that. So I was counting to see like how many dudes there were, but there are eight. Yeah, I didn't even catch that, but that's pretty cool because there are like brief references throughout the movie that this is kind of a long-standing tradition of there always needing to be a sentinel. And so that would make more sense, like if there was just a little bit of a world building just from showing the scene, because the scene does kind of stand out. It's kind of like it's never referenced back. I mean, you see the priest that that walk like that walks into the meeting or the or the prayer or whatever. You see him later on in the movie, but other than that, it's never really gone back to like who the that group of people were. So you can kind of infer that they are like either they know about the sentinel or they all represent sentinels from across the world yeah the plot the plot all ties it back around to that scene so we have like an explanation of why that scene was important later but we never go back to like that place in italy the movie is pretty firmly set in new york going forward yeah and 1970s new york looks hip as fuck in this movie i've always heard that new york in the 70s and 80s wasn't the best place but in this movie, they, they do a good job of, of just kind of showing it to be more, I don't know, fashionable, trendy. <laughs> That's what Heather was talking about. I was watching this movie while she was in the room. She was just kind of half watching it with me. But the whole time, she was just commenting on like, oh my god, I love that outfit or I love that shirt. The actress is in a shampoo commercial that we see a snippet of, and she makes a reference to it. But the whole time, Heather just kept saying, her hair is so shiny. Her hair looks so good. And it's like, yep, everything about New York in the 70s is on display here as far as hipness goes. The one thing we were joking about was the wide ties. Eli Wallach has these, like, huge fucking, like, dinner bib-sized neckties with his like schlubby you know police detective outfit um but everything else is just like super hip and trendy for sure so we follow allison and you find out through the next few scenes that uh she's a fashion model who lives in new york city and she's currently apartment hunting 
And she has a friend with her who at first is trying to get her to go ahead and say, move in or marry her longtime boyfriend, this guy named Michael, who I think, I believe is a uh, lawyer in this. Yes. yes. He's a lawyer in this movie. And even he's like, why don't you just like, why don't we get married or why don't you move in with me? And she was like, no, I just need space. And you kind of get the feeling that like, cause like she, she starts getting these headaches and you kind of get the feeling that she just needs to like have her own space to just kind of unwind from the day because, you know, it's, she's a fashion model. She has a very busy schedule. It's probably very hectic. And so she just keeps saying that, no, no, I need my own place. I need somewhere to breathe. Quick, I made a quick note about Michael, who is played by Chris Sarandon. Michael is, or Chris Sarandon rather in this movie, would be what I would try to be look to look like if I was like a young adult in the 1970s. He would be what I would want to look like. Mustache and all. Yeah, mustache and all. He looks in, uh, He looks good in this movie. I'm not going to lie. So you see uh, her and then Michael house hunting separately from each other. Right. And they're looking at some different places and kind of going back and forth. And obviously the realtors are trying to like, you know, give them the run around to get them to go ahead and pull the trigger on one place or the other. One of the apartments was one $1,000 a month for like a high rise, like super luxurious high-rise apartment which now i can't even imagine what it is but yeah dear lord 1000 1000 in the 1970s was probably a lot of money yeah they end up back at michael's apartment and that's where you know like you said she's just kind of saying you know like i'm not ready to like commit to moving in yet i need to get my own place for a little while i just wanted to have my own space one thing i did love about his apartment by the way and this is just like one of those nice little background character things all of his like Houdini advertisements and posters yes. are so fucking cool. Yep. And you can tell that's just like a little character thing that he loves like illusions and magic and Houdini because like he's even just like sitting on the spine of the couch while they're talking and he's just idly like doing the thing where he you know, you stuff your handkerchief into like one balled up hand with like the finger of your other one like to make it like disappear like he's just sitting there practicing his like sleight of hand magic shit while they're talking like it's just a nice character detail that's like never brought up and never mentioned it's just there yeah so anyway you know while they're talking uh the phone rings and he answers it and it's her mom um so she picks up the phone and after just a few seconds you know it cuts back to her and you know he says hey is everything okay and she says no it's my father and she's crying so then we cut to this big mansion, which was in, I think he said Jersey. No, he said Baltimore. She goes back to the mansion where her family lived, and we can assume that they're fairly wealthy. There was a small scene where they showed her dying father as well, like in the bed. I made a note here that the dying father in this movie looked more realistic, like with the hospital equipment and everything. It looked more realistic than most modern movie and TV shows look like when somebody is like at the end of their life and in care like in hospice basically but yeah they they do show her dad basically at the time of his death um which is an important it's an important plot point that comes up later um so you have an idea of like what he looks like and then like you were saying it goes it goes to this mansion basically in baltimore everybody was gearing up essentially to go to the funeral, you know, to actually, like, go from the house and leave, but, um, she's clearly, like, not feeling well, the doctor guy that's there even says she's in shock and she needs to stay behind, so she stays behind in the house by herself, and in that period of time, she's walking through the house and she starts to remember all these, you know, things from growing up, and she kind of sees a vision of 
her younger self arriving back at the house and walking through the house and hearing a noise going into a bedroom, which I maybe got the impression it was her bedroom, but it might not have been. It might have just been like a bedroom in the house. But she goes in and basically like walks in on her father, naked, cavorting around with these two other naked women, and they're like on the bed rolling around and like having an orgy. <laughs> Like, eating cake. There's, like, a birthday cake there. Once the dad, like, notices her standing there, he, you know, freaks out and starts yelling and knocks over a birdcage that was standing there and throws everything around while these two women that he's with are just, like, cackling and laughing. And he just walks over and starts slapping the shit out of her and screaming, like, you have no business in here and blah, blah, blah. And you get this feeling that, like, this isn't the first time that this has happened or that, you know, this isn't the first time that he's abused her this way. But, you know, she runs down the hallway crying and goes straight to the restroom and pulls out razors and cuts her wrists. And from there, like, she collapses in the floor and her father and the two women, like, rush in there to realize, like, oh no, she's, you know, in a bad way. So then we kind of cut back to the present where she's, you know, busy reliving all this trauma. It's pretty intense and... I don't know if this is because like if this was a modern horror movie, I feel like there would have been like the build up, the change in the soundtrack and all of that. No, this is just a straight up like and they don't even really it's kind of implied that it's she's having a vision. But it just at first the way the movie is shot, it just looks like this little girl gets out of the car and it's not until like she's walking down the hallway past Christina Raines that you realize like, oh, that's her younger and they, again, it's another show don't tell. It's it's not like a vision where you're explicitly seeing in flashback or it does like the she's remembering it. It's happening around her. Yes, like it's it's like ghosts in hip inhabiting the same exact environment. Literally, um, like the younger version of herself walks down the hallway right in front of her. You know, she's basically in the flashback at the same time. And again, I think a lot of modern horror movies would make the mistake of like her slow like her younger self slowly going towards the door building up this this soundtrack now in this movie she just opens the door and then all of a sudden you go from like oh this is kind of a like been a kind of an innocent movie about uh, a girl and her boyfriend to up uh, naked orgy 11 minutes in and then this girl trying uh, like attempted suicide basically and it all within 11 minutes of this movie. It was it wasn't scary or like a jump scare, but it was it was pretty shocking to just go from 0 to 60 that quickly. It reminds me in a way of when all the shit's going down in the shining, like when when she runs up the stairs and just like looks down the hall and she sees that guy blowing the butler or whatever. It, it was just one of those things of just like this was the last thing I expected to like walk in on the other thing too and this is just another good bit of like character development you know we see the scene where as a teenager she slits her wrists and tries to commit suicide um and obviously we know that didn't work because she's still alive in the present right but um at one point when her friend does suggest like hey you know why don't you just move in with your boyfriend she even explicitly says you know well we've been together two years and our relationship's been fine, you know, ever since I got out of the hospital. You can infer that, like, this is something she's been dealing with for years of her life is some form of mental illness, whether it's depression or anxiety or, you know, whatever. Like, you get the impression that this is not the first time that she's had a self-destructive episode like this. 
It was interesting to see the portrayal of mental illness in a 70s horror movie. Like, I was not expecting that at all when I sat down to watch this. It's not that often that you really see a lot of these things dealt with, you know, at this point in time. At least not in, you know, something like a genre movie. After after the funeral, um, she gets a call to come and take a look at another apartment. She is met by Ava Gardner, the realtor. They bring her to this pretty solid looking little apartment it's already furnished it's super cheap the whole time you know she's walking her through and giving her the tour and they're asking questions about like who else lives here and you know how long has the place been empty and Ava Gardner is definitely changing her answers kind of subtly you can tell like at one point Christina loops back around and says something like you know for $500 I don't know that this apartment's worth it and Ava Gardner says 400. She said, wait, I thought you said 500. Nope. I said, uh, I said 400. You know, so she's like subtly changing, you know, her answers kind of to sweeten the deal a little bit. So you can tell something's kind of already a little bit off. But because you had that initial opening interaction with all the other realtors who were all just kind of blatantly lying to them about like, oh yeah, people are lined up around the block to get this thousand dollar apartment and you you know, this is just such a good deal and blah blah and we have look at how nice this is and you know, they're like calling their bluffs basically. So she probably just thinks that Ava Gardner's maybe blowing smoke up her ass a little bit, um, in regards to the pricing and everything else. But it's just too good of a deal to pass up. So she takes it. As they're leaving the apartment building, um, she does look up to the window and notice that there's a figure there in the window staring down at them. Allison asks about it, and Ava Gardner just kind of blows it off and says, oh, well, that's just, you know, the old priest that lives up on the top floor, and he's blind, and, you know, he doesn't fool with anybody. He just stares at the window all day. It's it's nothing. Don't worry about it. Yeah, he's senile. Don't worry about it. <laughs> that's another one of those moments where, check, please. Yeah, <laughs> I'm getting the fuck out of here now. <laughs> Yeah, it's, that that's one of the points in a lot of horror movies where you're just kind of like, mm, nah, I'm good. If if I was in the situation, like that's where I would have gotten out of the story, you know. Either way, uh, she moves in. She starts to kind of meet the rest of the neighbors that live in this apartment building. And the first one that she bumps into is Burgess Meredith, who, like I mentioned, just plays the best old queen. Um, his name is Charles. And when you first beat him, he's got a parakeet on his shoulder and a cat. And he's just being super nosy old neighbor. He just walks right into her apartment. Like, just yep. <laughs> invites himself right in. And just starts, like, chit-chatting about anything and everything and, like, nosing around and commenting on everything. I've had people like this come into my job before that just drive me up the wall and they just come in and, like, start asking you all kinds of personal questions and nosing around and being, like way too like handsy and close to you and you can tell it's just like they don't mean bad by it they're just annoying yeah they don't really pick up on social cues or distance or anything like that yeah not at all so he's fantastic she also then meets the other two women that live you know next door and it's an older woman with some kind of european accent and she's wearing, like, a dancing leotard. Her roommate is a very young Beverly D'Angelo, um, who is also wearing a leotard. And you can tell that the two of them are 
somehow like together sexually. Um, she definitely like the older woman puts her hand on the other woman's leg and kind of runs it up her thigh a little bit. And she steps out of the room for a moment and Beverly D'Angelo starts just violently masturbating on the couch while Allison is still sitting there in front of her, just, like, shocked, not knowing what the <laughs> hell to say. And it's a very strange and uncomfortable moment all of a sudden. Again, came out of nowhere, just like the orgy flashback. Like, it just starts happening. And I was like, at that point, I was like, what the fuck movie am I watching? To make it even weirder, there's a moment a little bit later in the movie where somebody does mention that the two of them are sisters. Yes. So that, like, makes it even weirder, right? So, at that point, Allison's like, what the fuck okay no bye they reminded me of female mcpoyle twins from, <laughs> from the mcpoyles from it's always sunny in philadelphia they were like the female equivalent of that totally they just needed some like glasses of warm milk yeah at that point she's just like nope fuck this so she you know gets her bags and gets up and leaves and she bumps back into Charles again on her way out. And Charles was like, oh, yeah, whatever. They're delightful. Yeah, hey, how are you ladies doing? And just, like, whatever, just completely ignores the weird situation that she was in, that she was leaving, and just kind of still says hey to these neighbors. So um, she goes back up to her room and, you know, goes to bed. And then at night you start to hear all these other, like, noises and banging and the chandelier is swinging, right? So the next day she gets back in contact with the realtor, Ava Gardner, to complain about, like, how the neighbors are just, like, really strange and, you know, they're just making lots of noise and keeping her up constantly. And at that point, we get to kind of the first twist fairly early in the movie because Ava Gardner tells her, like, um, nobody else lives in that house. Yeah. Like, it's you and the old priest guy that we saw upstairs. upstairs. Yep. But there's uh, nobody that lives there. And she's like, uh, no, I just talked to all these people and this person, this person, this person. And I, like, got invited to a party for a cat. Um, that was the other thing that happens. She goes to, like, a birthday party for Charles's cat where all the other neighbors are joined around and wearing, like, birthday hats and shit. So Ava Gardner takes her back to the apartment building. Well, and she also, uh, so a couple things I noticed too, like during the nights where it shows like she's having insomnia and all these weird noises and the chandelier swinging. Something I noticed was that when she checked the clock one of those times, it was 3.30 in the morning and the witching hour is between 3 and 4 in the morning. So I, I thought that was like a nice touch. I don't know if they did that on purpose or not, but in my mind they did. And so I thought that was a nice touch that like all this weird shit is happening at the like right in the middle of the quote unquote witching hour. Also, she has that dream of like the party again when the, when she goes to the party for the cat, like he blindfolds her because he wants to surprise her. I thought this was going to be jump scare like number one right off the bat. Like as soon as he uh, like removes the blindfold, it's going to be some fucked up like another orgy or sexual thing going on that I'm un unprepared for. And no, it's just this weird fucking party with uh, for a cat and all the people at the party are acting kind of strange, like polite enough to pass like just being that where you don't feel too suspicious but there are like all these little things and little lines of dialogue that they say that make it really strange and then later on she has a dream that of the same party and it's more like fucked up and nightmarish 
And I think she even has at this point another another vision of like it's basically implied that she's had a couple attempted suicides, not just that one we saw in the beginning of the film. Yeah. And so that all leads up to her going and and getting the realtor back and being like, what the fuck is happening in this apartment? Basically, Ava Gardner takes her back to the apartment building and they go through the apartment building together to like look through the other rooms. And first of all, like when she was just straight up like, yo, you're the realtor, you should have the keys, right? Just come let me into these other apartments and let's go take a look. Heather immediately was just like, um, that's not how that works because I'm a lawyer and I know these things. Anyway, they go back and they go through all the other apartments just to show like, yep, these are all empty, see? And, you know, of course, Allison's like, well, no, this was this was here and this was here and there were all these like you know chairs and furniture and you know there are all these plants and this was all here and i saw these people um but they walk through all the apartments and sure enough like they're all empty you know and there's some furniture but it's all just kind of you know laying around there's like books and that kind of thing yeah it's it's very dusty and cobwebs all over the place in some of these apartments to show that like they have not been inhabited in and for a while. Yeah, this is kind of where everything kicks into high gear. Because like you said, she goes, you know, back to sleep. She has another kind of waking nightmare moment where she hears another noise and she goes to look around. At this point, she does go to explore the other apartments. And and right before she went to bed, too, she called her boyfriend, Michael, to be like, you have a guy, I know you have a guy, I need a phone in this in this apartment. And it struck me, I was like, yeah, this is the 70s, like, ha- not having your own line in, like, your apartment, that could be a problem. Like, that's just a problem that would not, we wouldn't have to worry about. Like, I know when we were talking about It Follows, it kind of just drove both of us up a wall that no one seemed to have a modern cell phone. Whereas in this movie, oh yeah, it takes place in the 70s, not having a landline would be a huge problem. But, you know, cell phones don't exist yet, so... It, that that never really took me out of the movie or anything. Once she starts hearing all the noises and banging again, she goes to kind of look around the other apartments in the building. And this time, you know, they are all empty, just like we saw earlier. Um, but as she's looking around, she gets to a point where she turns a corner and there's suddenly this shadow that we see of this figure standing behind a doorway. And just as she kind of like seems to give up, and throw her hands up and turn around and go to leave, the figure just dashes out in front of her, and it's her dad from earlier in the orgy scene, where he's basically naked. He's just wearing kind of, like, shredded underwear. But he is, like, corpse, gross, rotted. He's pale. He's got mold all over his face, and his eyes are all milky. Yeah, this this was right around the 44, 45-minute mark, and it's about two or three minutes of really intense, just, like, kind of crazy shit happening when her dad appears and kind of like chases after her and i did mark at the 44 minute mark when he first like comes into into the screen into frame that i gave that as a little minor jump scare but then like literally a minute later he kind of attacks her out of nowhere again and that one got me so right around the 44 45 minute mark you have two relatively solid jump scares and i mean it is dated uh this was a late 70s movie but it was. It's still creepy enough. The the practical effects, makeup job that they did is still creepy enough that it got me. So yeah, that was a pretty good jump scare moment. And at this point too, she's got a knife that she's picked up. 
Um, so the second time that it pops up, she, like, stabs him. She stabs him in the chest. She stabs him in the stomach. She even stabs him in the eye, and his eyeball kind of squishes out. Doesn't she cut his nose off or something like that, too? Yeah, she slashes down and cuts his nose off, which is, like, a really interesting effect to see. Yeah, I wrote down, I wrote down 70s gore is amazing, because it was just so... It was all done practically, it looked like, and it obviously it's dated, but it's still, there was just something about the campiness of how gory the scene looked that I, I loved it. Yeah, and there was definitely some camera trickery going on. Like, I could tell that there was maybe, like, some reverse shots, um, or there were maybe, like, some cutaway kind of moments, but either way, um, she ends up stabbing, you know, this apparition, which she doesn't necessarily know that it is at this point runs out into the street into the street screaming you know with blood on her and this knife we then cut to her in the hospital you know and she's kind of being taken care of her boyfriend uh chris sarandon michael um is there and this is the first point where we have the two detectives show up who were played by eli wallach and christopher walken so the two of these detectives show up because you know at this point we have a woman ran out into the middle of the street in the night, screaming bloody murder with a knife and covered in blood, which apparently was just her own blood. And she's screaming that she had just stabbed somebody, but there's no body, there's no blood. Like, they can't find anything in this house. So, like, something's going on, right? So these two detectives kind of show up, and they start questioning Michael. And this is where you kind of start to get some interesting backstory on him, because up to this point, you get the impression that he's like an up-and-up kind of guy. But these two detectives start bringing up all this backstory with him where maybe he's involved in some slightly crooked criminal dealings that he's gotten in trouble for in the past. So maybe he's not that great of a guy. You also find out that Michael's previous wife committed suicide and that he was possibly looked at as a suspect. And at this point, Eli Wallach is still pretty convinced that, you know, he had something to do with his first wife's death. He kind of hammered away at it for a while, but, you know, never turned up any evidence to sufficiently, you know, indict him on it and bring on charges. So, you know, he kind of feels like, you know, Chris Sarandon might have gotten away with it and he's still kind of sticking it to him. And Chris Sarandon, obviously, the way he reacts to this is like, y'all just are going after me for no reason. I'm a lawyer. Y'all don't trust lawyers, blah, blah, blah. Christopher Walken. Uh, he has very few lines in this movie. Most of the time he stands around and just chews his gum really loudly to be like, I'm obviously like the cool guy asshole detective. And it, he does a good, even though he doesn't have any lines, he does a pretty good job of it. Like I could tell like, yeah, you, you're a pain in the ass, aren't you? This is kind of the first bit of the detective subplot um, where, you know, we have Eli Wallach and Christopher Walken looking into kind of what's going on and keeping an eye on um, Michael. You know, because they, they're convinced that he's involved somehow still from his first wife's death, but also that he's still somehow wrapped up in the situation that's going on now with Allison. And and the detectives even hint that Allison, she's a little bit neurotic. Like, she has had these episodes, like, they, they're like, we did a little digging. And, and throughout the movie, it's slowly, like, it starts, like, when she starts getting these bad headaches. She starts, like, literally collapsing. At one point, I think one of the doctors says that, you might lose your sight when you're older. And so throughout the movie, all that's happening. And then this big lead up. So all the de the detectives are also attacking Chris Sarandon through Christina Rain's character, through Allison. 
One thing that I kind of get the impression of, and maybe, you know, maybe I'm wrong about this, but it seems that she starts to get more and more intense headaches and dizziness and fainting spells when she's not at the apartment. Yes, I, I noticed that too. Anytime that she's actually away from the apartment that's kind of drawing her to it, she feels sick and uneasy and has these fainting spells. But as soon as she gets back to the apartment, she's just magically fine again. You know, I'm not sure if like I'm reading that correctly, but that seems to be the case is that she only seems to have these episodes when she's not at the apartment. Towards the climax of the movie, there is a part where she is acting kind of sickly and I think she is at her own apartment. No, I think she's staying at Michael's apartment at that, that part. So yeah, I think you're yeah, right. Yeah, she is. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Every time, like at least all the scenes of her collapsing and having headaches and being sickly are when she's not in her own apartment. She's never sick in her own apartment, at least that I can remember. Um, and they never s- mention that either. That's just kind of another show-don't-tell thing. Eventually, Michael looks into the apartment's history and basically finds out that it's been owned by the church this whole time well and he does it in an interesting way because he like he basically pays off this guy who can break into locks i i think he there's an offhand comment that like he either represented him at one point or whatever but obviously like he owes him a favor of some kind and so he pays this guy to so they can they can break into the this priest's office basically and uh, and look up some documents. This is after Michael and Allison attempt to go to the apartment at the very top of the building to like talk to the priest who's there just to see like what he knows about the building because she hadn't been able to talk to him. His apartment's locked. Um, they haven't been able to get in. You know, they go and knock and knock and knock and nobody answers. So at that point, you know, he does some digging, finds out that the building is owned by the church and then actually goes to the diocese to like dig into it a little bit further also it's it's a little thing but it, it is kind of like what sets him up going down his road of looking into things is that at that same point like when they go upstairs to try and talk to the priest they also go into one of the abandoned apartments again and she grabs a book off the wall and the book she is seeing latin when she reads the book and he is seeing just regular english and so he asks her to spell out like like what she or like to write the letters she reads because it's the same line over and over again through all the book like all all it says in the book is this one line so she writes the line out for him and he goes to a professor a foreign language professor of some kind and the guy basically deciphers it and i forget what it says but it's basically some like cryptic you know religious bullshit yeah it's just something about like you know the guardian of hell and this gateway we must keep safe and blah blah blah. and it was like the same little snippet of you know incantation that the priests the very beginning of the movie in italy were all saying so you know she's clearly somehow channeled into some kind of force or extra worldly communication now because you know, she's tied to the building spiritually, and she's seeing Latin and all these empty books where there's clearly just, like, regular English written on them. So he goes to the diocese, Michael goes to the diocese to kind of dig around and investigate. And the priest that he happens to run into is a uh, John Carradine, so it's Father Halloran. He's the same priest that you see at the beginning of the movie that shows up with this group of other priests. And they talk for a little while about the building and the... Uh, the priest that lives at the top, which you find out that the priest that lives at the top just got to the point where he was kind of blind and senile and couldn't really do much more for, 
you know, the priesthood, so they just kind of paid to put him up there. Um, but you don't find out much more than that. But there is, like, a file that he has on this priest. And Michael asks, like, hey, can I go ahead and, like, make a copy of those files for my own records? And Father Halloran's just like, uh, no. <laughs> that's, uh, that's Catholic Church property. Sorry, bro. But he sees he, like, he locks up the files, essentially. Yeah, and at one point, too, uh, Allison also goes to the church. And it's after one of her episodes of, like, her basically collapsing. And I think she's at Michael's apartment again, and she decides to go for a walk, and she wanders to that same church, and she runs into that same priest. And it's basically kind of, it's implied that she is set up to be the next sentinel because uh, they're asking, like, she must pay for her sins for, like, the previous suicide attempts. She needs to be the new sentinel for her to basically accept Jesus again or something. like. So before that, John Carradine, um, the Father Halloran character, he was kind of on and off, like, spying on her throughout the rest of the movie. You kind of see him kind of in the background lurking and keeping an eye on her. So, yeah, when she shows up at this church, he's there, and she talks to him. And that's where he, yeah, he basically just tells her, like, look, you know, because of what you've done in the past, and, like, you, you're going to have to atone for that eventually. So, you know, she kind of doesn't think much of it leaves. After the same Father Halloran tells Michael, like, no, I can't give you these files, and locks them up. Um, Michael goes back with kind of his, like, fixer guy, which turns out that that guy is William Hickey, in which he's another great character actor as well, but he's kind of the sleazeball, like, fixer guy. So they go in the middle of the night, and you can tell, like, this is another one of those moments where you can tell that Chris Sarandon probably has been involved in some shady stuff, because he's clearly got this guy who can, like, pick locks and break into buildings. He also, you know, clearly has done this kind of thing before, because he's got on, like, his own jacket and gloves and beanie hat and everything else. So they sneak in, and they bust the safe open, and they find this giant stack of files. And he starts thumbing through the files, and every single one of them has a person... Like, every single page is, like, a, as a person where there is a picture of them with their regular name. And then the next photo is them either in priest garb or nun garb with their new, like, Catholic name. So it'll be, like, John Smith on the left with a regular everyday picture of a guy. And then Father Tommy on the right. And doesn't he doesn't he mention too at some point in all their lives they all like attempted suicide or something as well like they were all suicide survivors. That's kind of the key that links them all together is that they are all people who tried to commit suicide. Every single one of them, like the day that they tried to commit suicide or the day that they like supposedly died, is then like the day that their alternate identity emerges. So every single one of these people that tried to commit suicide or supposedly did will then immediately become this new person afterward but this you know folder had a page for every single person and he starts thumbing back through them and it literally goes all the way back to like the revolutionary days of america like there's old like hand-drawn woodblock print kind of pictures of these people so the records clearly go back this whole way and you see that the most recent person is the priest who lives at the top of the building where the twist kind of comes in is that literally the last page is a brand new page that shows, you know, Allison Parker and has a current picture of her, but then like the empty spot for her picture, you know, going forward. So that's when he kind of puts the two and two together that like, oh shit, 
you know, she's going to suddenly, like, something's going to happen, like, the next time that she tries to commit suicide. And it says that it's on a specific date. Like, she's supposed to assume the new, become the new Sentinel on, like, a specific date, which is, like, a day or two from when he finds this out, basically. Yeah, so now he's, now they're on this timer of trying to figure out what's going on, possibly before this date hits, because that's the day that she will either successfully commit suicide or attempt again and then assume this new identity supposedly well he goes back to the apartment and he calls up her best friend and was like you need to come here now and they're talking and he's basically like tomorrow night just i need you to watch over her i need you to take care of her make sure she doesn't leave babysitter basically and her friend is like well i can't i'm throwing this party i can't come here and watch her and so he determines, meanwhile, she's, like, really sick. She's getting worse. Like, her her, her physical and mental condition is just worsening. Me, so he gets the bright idea, oh, I'll just bring her to your party for a little while, and then uh, I'll just drop her off and you can watch her at your party, and then I'll go. And her friend's like, okay, I guess. So it jumps to them going to this party, and obviously, like, the way they did the makeup on, on Allison, the way that they the costuming department handled it like it shows her like in fancy party clothes but she is obviously like looking really sickly looks very sickly to the point where like they walk in the door and people are walking up to michael and saying what's wrong with her basically and he's just blowing it off being like oh no no it's nothing um jeff goldblum also is one of those people that gets in his face about it so they hang out at the party for a little while and he's like i need to go take care of this thing i'll be right back just make sure she doesn't leave or go anywhere after midnight her friend's like okay so her friend guides her into her bedroom and like lets her lay down in her bed meanwhile michael goes back to the apartment he sees that there's this board like right when you walk in the apartment he sees that there's this boarded area on the wall and so he decides to break it open and he breaks it open and it's aban- like the sign that's apparently above the sign in hell. Abandon all hope ye who enter here. That's kind of when you realize that, oh shit, this place literally is like an apartment over a portal to hell. I, lo- I read this on the Wikipedia page. I can't remember if it's ever referenced directly or where. You basically, Allison at one point learns that the building was owned by a secret society of excommunicated priests that set up like this apartment over the gateway to hell. I don't remember exactly that being shown or told, but it was apparently at some point. I think it's something that like Michael puts together just from like looking through the files but i don't think that we ever like for sure like she never finds that out for sure yeah michael's whole plan you know initially was okay i know this date that she supposedly is going to commit suicide so i need to keep her away from this apartment so that's why he sends her away to be with a friend and he thinks okay i'm just gonna go to the apartment and deal with this myself yeah and so that's like when he breaks it open he realizes like this place is fucked up in some way And then the priest from upstairs, which this was a little bit of a jump scare, just like kind of appears behind him, just muttering random shit. Like he's literally like walking around just muttering something about, again, more cryptic, biblical type uh, nonsense. And so Michael's like, what's wrong? You know, tell me what's going on. I want to know what the hell is going on. What do you have to do with my girlfriend? And like the priest turns around and starts walking back upstairs. Michael follows him, just screaming at him more being like why aren't you answering me why aren't you doing this and it all leads up to them getting back to the priest's apartment at the top floor rather and he sits back down in his chair and looks out the window and michael like he's ignoring michael completely and just muttering the same thing over and over again 
So Michael <laughs> starts just jumping to murder, like trying to strangle him to be like, I, you're not telling me what I want. So in an act of rage, he starts strangling the priest, which I thought was a little drastic, but uh, because the poor guy is a senile blind priest, as far as we know at this point. In retrospect, it makes sense because Michael obviously has this weirdly dark, shady past that possibly included violence of some kind. And so then all of a sudden, Michael gets his head caved in by someone off screen who stops him from like strangling the priest, basically. And then it cuts back to Allison's friend's apartment. And Allison, like her friend got up to and like left her in the room for a second to like get a drink or something. She comes back and she's gone. Like she went out the window. So nice job there. You had one job and you <laughs> fucking failed it miserably. Allison is like dying and she's like making her way back to the apartment. On the way, she does come across the same exact church that she was at earlier. And so she stumbles back into the same church, and this time she's met by a different guy altogether from the priest that she saw earlier, the John Carradine priest. And this priest is just like, oh, hey, you know, haven't seen you around here before. And she's like, wait, who are you? And he said, oh, I'm Father So-and-So. This is my church. And she's like, uh, no, I talked to the dude who, like, was here just recently, and you're not him. And he's like, nope, well, I'm the only person that's here. So she kind of freaks out at that point and, you know, like leaves again and goes back to the apartment. So when she gets to the apartment, this is where things get (laughs) ridiculous. So she she goes back to her own apartment at first and like it's already right at the bat. You know, notice something's not right because the cat is in the hallway and it's eating something like just some visceral. It was eating the bird. Yeah, it was eating the bird. That's right. Yeah, I can't believe I, I forgot about that. Yeah, it's eating the bird. And she's like, what the fuck? And she like wa- tries to walk up to it a little bit and it turns around and hisses at her. Throughout the movie, it's just been a normal cat. Hasn't been unfriendly to anybody, uh, but it hisses at her. And so she goes back to her room and Michael is in her room. He starts talking to her and explaining to her like every like what's going on, how this is her time and like what he found out from the church. But then he slowly starts like goading her into like, so join us, join me. Like y- you need to join me. And she's just like, something's not right with you. He's also wearing like all white, shiny yeah. white suit. Yep. And he's clearly like not harmed from earlier when we saw his head get bashed in. Yep. Um, so yeah, something's, something's up. He's got a little wicked smile on his face with his little mustache. So uh, something's the matter. I got to hand it to Chris Sarandon because it was pretty obvious that like there was going to be a heel turn here for him. But he still did a good job of acting. Uh, like with acting and slowly building up to that. Yeah, he straight up goes heel turn and he transforms and it shows like his face of what it actually looked like once. And is like, it shows that his head got literally caved in and he's talking to her. And that's when you find out, oh shit, he was killed upstairs. He's now trapped in the apartment because he's damned for some reason. You're not sure. And so she freaks out and she run like she just runs all these entities and damned souls is what you can infer all start popping out and they're all like physically fucked up in some way like they have like tumor like growths growing on their faces or like they're just filled with gore yeah it's it's a lot of extras and they all have like really unfortunate physical deformities or disabilities in one way like there's people that have like the weird like super scaly skin that you see at like circus sideshows is like alligator people and there's lots of people that are missing limbs or people that have like really weird growths or deformities so it's all these 
it's this like gross menagerie of people um, that are kind of all coming after her. And you see glimpses of like the people that lived in the apartment too. Yeah. Like, but they're all fucked up now. All the people that were there are there now, and they're all kind of ghastly looking, and they're coming after her. Because during that time, I don't know if I, I, I think it might have been when Michael was like telling her all he found out. Um, you found out that all the people, or no, it was I think actually the detectives when they were looking into it further. You found out that all the people that used to live in that hotel, or all the people she claims that she saw, were are all these like dead murderers and just really fucked up people who were all put to death for violent crimes, basically. So that's when you realize like they're all damned souls, basically. So she's like being chased basically up the stairs slow she's slowly making her stairs up to seeing all this fucked up shit happening around her there's a rotting girl that one got me that was another pretty solid jump scare for me so that's actually her yeah that that's like the vision of her when she was younger and she was in her like schoolgirl uniform with longer hair it's that same exact vision of herself but she's like half rotted away when she turns around and aren't the two sisters eating her or something like that, too? Um, later, yeah. She's, like, laying across the floor, and the two women that her father was, like, fooling around with... It's all just, like, at some point or another, all the apartment denizens are there, and they're, like, fucked up, damned forms, or, like, people from her past visions are there. And, like, she's kind of being fucked with by all of them. Like, none of them are, like quite like trying to capture or anything they're all just like fucking with her as she's like making her and like scaring her and she's making her way all the way up the stairs they're clearly hurting her back upstairs yeah you know for some particular reason and you know at this point too she's making her way through this crowd of people you also see the like ghastly form of her father show back up um so everything that she has been seeing kind of comes back around at this point in the movie she gets upstairs and then charles shows back up burgess meredith's character it, it was sort of implied that he was almost like a like the satan or the leader of the group at least they give her a knife and tell her like you can be back with michael again you all you have to do is kill yourself if you kill yourself there won't be a new sentinel and we can like basically i guess escape hell or whatever and re wreak havoc you can be back with Michael again. And it's also revealed that Michael, the reason why he's damned is he did in fact kill his last wife and got away with it and framed it as a suicide. And because he got, he died in the apartment by the other priest caving his head in, like he was, that's why he was there. And so like, she's kind of like, she's still like not doing well. She's freaking out. She's still kind of sickly. They hand her the knife and they're telling her like, just do it, just do it. She's kind of about to do it or like she's kind of like looking at the knife and then the two priests show up. The old priest has like a giant crucifix. So this is the old priest that was like blind and all kind of haggard who was living in the top and sitting in the chair staring out. And the still old but younger priest played by uh, John Carradine that we've seen throughout the movie. The two of them do show up and they are like hands forward with crucifix and Bible just like pushing their way through the crowd of demons recalling verses the power of god compels you the power yeah basically, basically yeah, yeah they're yeah. just like moses part in the red sea with all these demons just you know pushing their way through so then they get up to the front and confront charles 
they get up to the front, and that's when you realize, too, that Father Halloran was the one who caved in Michael's head when he was attacking the blind priest. Basically, they it, it turns into, like, Charles is trying to tempt her to kill herself, and then the priests are basically trying to get her to accept her responsibility as the new sentinel um, over this portal to hell, basically. And she accepts, like, her duty to become the new sentinel. It's funny because Charles is obviously pissed off now at this point. And he throws a knife and stabs fucking Michael's soul in, in the neck. And Michael's soul, like, falls over bloody. And then he just starts yelling at all of the uh, all the demons and damn souls to go back. Like, we have to go back now. We failed. And so, like, all like all of the, um, like, freaky people just, like, start crawling back into holes and in the vent. And, like, walking down the stairs and all that. And they all just creep away. And then he disappears. Uh, Charles disappears. The movie ends with it cutting to sometime in the future. It doesn't seem like it's too, too long in the future, but long enough. And it's a young couple who just are moving into New York. And it's that same realtor, Ava Gardner, is showing them the house. And that's when you realize that maybe Ava Gardner is actually working with the church. The young woman of the couple asks, like, oh, who else lives here? And she says, oh, just uh, just the old nun upstairs, but she's blind and senile and doesn't harm anyone. She just likes to stare out the window. A camera pans to Allison, who is now in a nun uniform. Her face is now a little more, like, pale and ghastly, and her eyes are milked over like she's blind. And she is the new sentinel watching over this portal to hell, basically. By the way, the... Uh guy at the end of the movie like the husband of that new couple is a uh, motherfucking tom berenger from platoon and major league etc um so that was kind of a another weird like last minute cameo that was in the movie to run, to go back around to like what i had mentioned earlier the movie is very on the nose it's very just like this place is built over a portal to hell and it's almost like this warrior for God type of story. And it's very much like a movie that I would write if I had to write a horror movie. <laughs> just not, it's just, it's a popcorn horror movie. It's like not, there's not, I mean, there are some intense themes dealing with like suicide and mental illness, but otherwise it's, it's not like it follows. It doesn't have, to me at least, it didn't really have this deeper meaning. It was just literally like a fun horror movie about a portal to hell. Yeah, and I mean, this this movie, while it's kind of considered to be, you know, a mild horror classic, um, you know, this movie was definitely not well received when it came out. A lot of people were just very dismissive of it. Because at this point, I mean, you know, Rosemary's Baby had come out and had done the same idea better. The Exorcist had come out and did the same idea better. You know, even like Shades of the Omen, you know, it was, you know, a bit derivative um, even today, it's not really, like, that well thought of, necessarily. I do think this movie is fun, and it is worth seeing and talking about, simply because there are so many character actors that are in it who are people of note. I think the movie is, like, well put together, you know? Like, as much as people kind of complain about the scenes being just nonsensical and making, you know, little connectivity since I don't think there's anything that's, like, out of place here, necessarily. Like, it's a pretty A to B story that's fairly, I wouldn't say convoluted, but, like, it's not super straightforward. Like, there are steps for sure, and there are maybe some side plots that don't quite go anywhere. I think, like, the biggest... The detectives that just... They're, that never pays off. Yeah, that's kind of the biggest problem is you're introducing these detectives that clearly have it out for Michael, but that whole storyline is never really resolved because 
it just kind of stops at a certain point and that's it, you know? So why have it if you're not going to, you know, play it out all the way? And that's clearly a, a script and writing issue. I don't feel like that's an issue of editing because we would have other bits and pieces that lead up to that, you know, but I just don't feel like the story part of that was written out well. Yeah, and that it seemed like their whole deal was literally just to do more setup for the heel turn of Michael. Like, otherwise... Where else are you going to find out about, like, his possible shady past or yeah. his wife and this other stuff? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's fine, but, like, they were treating... The last scene that the detectives are in, they are treating it like they know they're going to get to the bottom of this. And then they just never show up again in the in the movie. Yeah, so even even today the movie is not like super well regarded, but like I think it's I think it's fine enough. It's fun. Um, like you said, it's very on the nose. But as far as like oopy doopy, creepy, supernatural, demonic possession, haunted house, satanic kind of movies go from the 70s like this one's not bad at all it's i think very well put together the acting i think is all pretty solid you know it ranges from like really good um you know with a lot of the character actors to just kind of so-so with sarandon being kind of hammy you know christina reigns being tv actress i guess is kind of the best way i can put it without being dismissive or mean you know she's not the best, but she's definitely better than a lot of other performances that I've seen in movies similar to this. I like the vibe, you know, the 70s vibe is very fun. When it does decide it wants to be spooky, it is actually very, like, atmospheric. The scares in this movie, I think, are very interesting because they're not as spectral as you're used to seeing in these kinds of movies. Like, they're very more tangible, flesh and blood kind of experiences that she has with these characters when when everything was about to go down in the uh, the apartment building like i knew okay this is the part where like she's gonna make her way up the stairs and be harassed by all the demons basically i was waiting more for that spectral jump scare atmosphere not not the damned souls all coming out and looking like circus freaks basically but i thought that was actually it was well done and it wasn't what i was expecting at all and there were uh, the jump scares were well earned i felt um by the end of the movie um that whole that whole couple minutes of her making her way up the stairs all the way to her accepting her responsibility as the new sentinel i thought were all well done intense and genuinely frightening at some points how does all of like the catholicism the conspiracy theory stuff like does any of that work for you at all being that you are catholic uh well i haven't been in a church in probably over a decade so i don't know how catholic i am but yeah no i i was raised catholic and it does work for me a lot part of the reason why i say this would be a horror movie i could see myself writing and making is that i love the whole idea behind like there is this secret society within the catholic church that not even the catholic church publicly condones of exorcists or I guess warrior type priests of what or what what have you that combat evil spirits and demons or what have you. So this worked really well in that regard. But as far as like the historical moments of the church, I mean, again, it's it's like popcorn horror movie. Like they just the church is more of just portrayed as like this mysticism entity rather than what it actually is. Uh, you know, a very human corrupt entity. As far as the actual like supernatural angle of all this goes um did you more like how all the spirits and demons were kind of represented in this 
um, in terms of like their effectiveness, or was it maybe like a little too like on the nose and goofy to be effective for you? There was a little bit of goofiness in the last few scenes, like when they showed them a lot, like and especially in that last scene, that all takes place in the top floor because like they're literally all crowded around by those demons. It started to get goofy to me because like. It was fine, like, when she was, like, frantic and running up the halls and up the stairs and you're only catching glimpses of these demons or only, like, popping out for a second at her. Then it was like, that. okay, that's well done. That's that's pretty scary. But when they all followed her upstairs and then, like, they're all just kind of standing around like an audience and you start, like, looking at them and seeing what they actually look like, it, they start looking goofy. Honestly, the the scariest thing in the movie to me is her dad, her undead dad, basically. When he first shows up around the 45-minute mark, and then when he shows up in these scenes again, those were generally pretty scary. What would be more effective to me is, I don't know if I would like it more, because, again, it would probably scare the shit out of me, is more of that spectral idea of demons, like with the distorted faces and seeing things in the mirror and all that that's the stuff that i think would get me even worse but i did appreciate that they did do they did something that i was not expecting with the costume designs of the demons yeah all of that i found to be very interesting just because it's a different take than what you're used to seeing you know so overall i think that that part of it worked well but it is literally just the last 10 minutes of the movie that any of that really kind of kicks in. There are those few moments in the middle where we see some kind of disturbing, you know, moments where she sees some of the demons, but there's very little of that to be found through the rest of the movie, which is a common complaint that I see in, like, a lot of the reviews that I kind of skimmed, you know, from the 70s to now is just there's a lot of melodrama in between and a lot of kind of oopy-doopy Catholic, superstition nonsense but very little payoff you know i think the movie could use a little bit more of that to make it more consistently scary but overall again i generally enjoy this movie it's fun um it's certainly not like i wouldn't say it's an all-timer necessarily but it's definitely like gonna be in the list you know if you look at like the general list of horror movies it's gonna be under s for sentinel so it's definitely worth checking out what's your final scare count so I, I would say there are about three or four like solid jump scares um, and then like kind of just alarming scene cuts and scene changes to it. Like, like when she when it goes from like at the 11 minute mark where it, it, you see the orgy when she's having that flashback that just kind of came out of nowhere. It wasn't necessarily scary, but it was alarming. It's disturbing. Yeah. Yeah, it was disturbing. And then she like she goes to kill herself by cutting her wrists. And, you know, that can be I can understand if that's intense for some people as well. I don't know. I would give it like a five out of 10 on scary. Again, this one wasn't really too, too bad with the jump scares. And then as a movie, I, I had a good time watching it. I it's dated, but I think it ages well enough that it's worth a watch, especially if you're a horror movie buff. Um, I would give it like a 7.5 out of 10, I guess. Yeah, I really enjoy the datedness to it. Um, some things do pull you out of the movie slightly, but not so bad that you're like pulled out of the mood. I do enjoy seeing all the character actors that are in this movie for sure. I like a lot of the lore and world building it does with the whole idea of like gateway to hell and demons. Um, I just wish there were a little bit more moments of scare and intensity. But overall, yeah, I mean, fun movie. Derek seems to think it's not, like, super spooky, so maybe some of you scaredy cats can give it a try and see what you think. 
Yeah, honestly, so far, uh, I think the scariest movie we've watched, in my opinion, was It Follows. It's close between It Follows and Texas Chainsaw, but It Follows, like, creeped me out for a night or two. But, yeah, no, Sentinel, I think, is more fun than scary. We definitely have one that you and I have talked about doing soon that I think will definitely work for you. Um, I'm not going to tell you which movie. I'll leave that up to you to kind of figure out, but I think there's one on our immediate list that will definitely be your top spoopy movie, so. Oh, great. Can't fucking wait. Aw, yeah. Well, um, do you have anything else to throw out before we go? Jeff Goldblum in this movie looks hot. Jeff Goldblum is always hot. True, yeah. That man has aged quite well, I'd say. And I will say, as far as, like, Christina Reigns in this movie is, like, what I picture when I think of 70s horror scream queens. I don't know. I I guess I didn't pay as much attention to her actual acting because she was just like pretty fucking hot in this movie. Oh yeah, she's she's really gorgeous in the movie. And like I said, Heather kept joking the whole time. Just every time she was on screen and flipping her hair out, she was like, her hair is so pretty. It's so shiny. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone, uh, for a lot of people, Christopher Walken looked pretty good too as as a younger younger dude. So. Yeah, and then like I said, if if I was a, if I lived and was a young adult in the seventies, I would try and look like Chris Sarandon in this, mustache and all. I think we probably have a picture of us from like one of the parties that we had in college, where you're in a suit, and I think literally all that's missing is just a mustache, and you would kind of be right there. You had like a little bit of the curly hair at the time, and you know you in like a three piece suit with a vest. You just need that mustache, and I think you'd be right there. Yeah, not have my head bashed in by a priest. <laughs> well, that does it for this week's episode. Catch us on social media. Um, we are hoping to have everything thing up by the time that this episode possibly airs um so that's you know facebook instagram twitter but you can also check us out all the places where you normally get podcasts so itunes stitcher google play etc um i don't really have anything coming up of note or anything that i would like to like throw out there necessarily um derek do you have anything coming up nope nothing of note but if i uh start so if I start writing a good bit more, I might uh, I might let y'all know about that, but I haven't been writing too much lately, so... Well, um, once again, want to throw a shout-out to my younger brother, Jesse Mansfield, a.k.a. Party Gator, for doing our um, audio bumps at the beginning and end of the episodes. You can check out more of his stuff at Bandcamp. So that's it. Derek, you want to send us out? Stay scared, y'all. Get spooked. Sally!